It's October 1717, a bright autumn day in Boston, Massachusetts. The cries of vendors, merchants, and beggars fills the air. The trample of feet sound on the cobbles of bustling Queen Street. Through the throng of leather boots and silk-covered calves, at street level, sits a small window into another world. Behind a pane of grime-covered glass and rusting iron bars lie the subterranean cells of Boston Jail. Built by the Puritan populace of New England to house its morally wayward souls, from heretics and witches to pirates. For six months, seven men have waited, languishing in near perpetual darkness, awaiting trial. They are the surviving crew of the Mary Ann and the notorious Captain Sam Bellamy. They have suffered terribly. The dungeon is freezing and damp. They have a bucket for their waist and the cold stone floor for the rest. It's a wonder they're still alive. A small shaft of light filters in from the street above, punctuating the darkness. As one chronicler put it, if there is any such thing as a hell upon earth, I think this place is the nearest resemblance of any I can conceive of. The jailer struggles with the heavy iron keys. Behind him, in the shadows, looms an imposing figure. Today, the pirates have a visitor. Clutching a leather case in one hand and a lace handkerchief in the other, the Puritan minister steps into the jail. His white powdered wig catches the candlelight like a ghostly apparition floating above his jet black vestments. The guards escorting him to the cells regard him warily. This clergyman is well known to the God-fearing folk of Massachusetts. His reputation precedes him, but his composure and presence is unsettling. The minister carefully strides over the wet flagstones, picking his way over piss, vomit, and God knows what else. He misses a step and grimaces as he plants his buckled leather shoe into a vile pool of something. He looks sorely out of place, but none of this surprises him, far from it. He's spent many hours in such places. At the end of the hallway, the guards stop. They point to the cells shared by the survivors of Bellamy's pirate crew. The Puritan minister steps forward into the shaft of street light and introduces himself as Cotton Mather. The pirates lie about in their cells, shivering, pale, barely conscious. Mather places his briefcase on the floor, carefully undoes the buckles, and pulls out his prayer book. Eyeing the villains through the spiked bars, he launches into a fearsome sermon. The prisoners lie in their squalor, quietly processing their hopeless fates. They are already broken, 
His voice is strong, unerring, righteous. Matha calls on the pirates to confess, to save themselves. He speaks with the same conviction he expressed 20 years ago during the Salem witch trials. Some of the men are now sitting up, attentive, a congregation of sorts. After he leaves, he is pleasantly struck. Mather expected to find the pirates unrepentant, but to his surprise, there is one among them who is different. He makes a note in his diary. Obtain a reprieve and, if it may be, a pardon for one of the pirates, who is not only more penitent, but also more innocent than the rest. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. The Pirates' prospects are bleak. Their former lives of freedom on the high seas now seem very distant, almost like a dream. They had been part of a pirate convoy, led by the great treasure ship, the Widder, under their Commodore Samuel Bellamy. But six months ago, at the hands of a violent storm, their fates took a dramatic turn for the worse. As the Widder and several other ships battled the fierce weather, the crew of the Mary Ann drunkenly ran their vessel aground. They made a run for it and got as far as an East Ham tavern before they were captured by the authorities. The widow and her treasure sank to the bottom of the ocean, along with Bellamy's crew. Well, most of them anyway. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, the hunt for Captain Kidd and how he changed piracy forever. The widow is tossed into the shore and basically breaks into pieces and everything is strewn all along the coastline. There were anywhere between 130 and 160 men on board the ship and they were all tossed into the water. Out of all of these men, there were only two survivors and their names were John Julian and Thomas Davis. Bellamy himself was lost to sea and he was never ever found again. It's late April 1717, a few days after the sinking of the Widder. 
In heavy rain, a four-wheeled, horse-drawn prison wagon struggles along a single-track road somewhere in rural New England. Its wheels slide and stick in the mud. Chained up inside the cage, exposed to the elements, shivering and hunched over, is Thomas Davis and John Julian. Neither man has any idea if other pirates survived. All they think about is how they can survive what comes next. The carriage hits a rock that sends the prisoners jolting forward and into one another. Davis is whimpering. His throat is hoarse from constantly pleading his innocence. But Davis goes quiet when he spots something up ahead. Another carriage in the distance. The coachman whips his horse and makes haste. Bouncing along the uneven path, he catches up to the horse and buggy up ahead. It carries a larger prison carriage. Davis looks through the bars and recognizes the prisoners inside. It's the crew of the Mary Ann. These pirates are not his friends. They are, or were, his captors. They held him hostage on board Bellamy's ship, where they bullied and tortured him for the past five months. Davis is desperate. He begs to be let go as they're reunited with their comrades. Two more courtesy of Justice Doan, the coachman yells, bundling Davis and Julian into the larger carriage. The door shuts. The keys lock. Davis's fate is sealed. He will go on trial for the same crimes as the people who tortured him. They may have been separated by the storm, but they're all in the same boat now. To Boston prison they go. The jail sentence was one of the absolute worst circumstances that pirates endured outside of their own execution. They often had to stay there for quite a long time, several months. Conditions were horrific. They had virtually no daylight coming into their cells because their cells were below ground, which meant that they were always cold and they were always wet because of water seeping in, rain kind of coming in through gutters, going down into the prisons. They have very bad food and sometimes they're forced to go without food altogether. There are also no bathroom facilities. So they are often sitting in their own human waste. So a lot of prisoners would get very sick and someone even die in jail. And it was often known as jail fever. This, however, is where the road ends for John Julian. He won't linger in jail with his fellows. He won't stand trial either. In fact, there will be no mention of him hereafter in the historical record. Julian is a member of the indigenous Mosquito people of Central America. We can't say what happened next, but it's likely due to his ethnicity. He would have been treated differently. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. Your possibilities might not be nearly as good if you were a person of African or indigenous descent because you could be in a regime where you would be promptly enslaved or have no rights and the like. Even the young United States would rule that indigenous people couldn't be citizens, right? That was an early law in the U.S. And in the British colonial period, I imagine similar attitudes would have existed. In some cases, because people were often regarded as property, you could be spared execution because you were property, not a person, and therefore you would be sold back into slavery, right? And be off to another 
terrible fate. Once incarcerated, the pirates are immediately interrogated. Samuel Shute, the governor of Massachusetts Bay himself, interviews the pirates on the 6th of May, 1717, approximately a week after the storm struck. Each pirate pieces together a small part of the story. The prisoners at the Mary Ann tell Shute about Bellamy's terror tactics and the ships they plundered. They confirm the names and numbers in Bellamy's company. They also tell of the great fortune lost on board the Widder Galley, which they say is somewhere between 20 to 30,000 pounds, as well as countless other details. Details that have survived the test of time. Eric J. Dolan is author of Black Flags, Blue Waters, the epic history of America's most notorious pirates. Pirates did not write their own memoirs, at least as far as we know. So their mark on history was quite minimal. And one of the main reasons that we have a lot of information about pirates is those that got caught were put on trial. And this is an era when trial transcripts started to be published and the public wanted to learn about these pirates. So depositions and other types of materials gave us a lot of information about these pirates. Thomas Davis tells Shute how he was taken captive from a merchant ship forced by Bellamy to join his pirate crew. But he isn't alone. Each of the seven men from the Mary Ann also proclaim their innocence. All insist that they too were forced against their will. It's the standard line every pirate falls back on. Dr. David Wilson is an historian and author of Suppressing Piracy in the Early 18th Century. There's just gradually more and more forced pirates, so people who are brought on board and forced to become pirates. When we talk about forced pirates and unforced pirates, it's more of a spectrum. There's always a strong contingent who are the sort of first mutineers, for example, but there might be others who have just been dragged along and who then become active pirates. The problem with that is you were only innocent at the point you were forced. After that point, you can't really prove whether you then took part willingly or not. While many of them are lying, some may be telling the truth. The court will decide. Witness testimony and character references will be brought to bear. It is debatable whether the pirates will condemn each other. Turning crown witness could mean saving their own necks, but it could mean killing a friend. They seem to be bound by an unspoken pirate code of honor. Pirates were generally loath to turn each other in. And this is because pirates did consider themselves to be a brethren, kind of a brotherhood. It was very, very rare for pirates to actually speak out against each other unless a pirate was very much trying to save himself because it was possible he may have actually been forced into it and he needed to try to condemn everybody else in order to get himself acquitted. Back in the cells, Thomas Davis lies separate from the others. Innocent as he may be, he is every bit as fearful for his life. Colonial officials are harsher to pirates now more than ever. Over the past five years or so, during the booming golden age of piracy, attitudes among colonial societies have changed. The colonists were getting screwed by pirates. Their ships were being attacked. They were being plundered. Their bottom line was being undermined. So all of a sudden there was a confluence of interests not only was the mother country and parliament and the crown intent on shutting down these pirates, but also now the colonists who in the late 1600s had largely been on the side of the pirates, now the colonists were totally against the pirates. This trial comes at a turning point in colonial pirate relations. The clamor from merchants, governors, and plantation owners 
has become deafening. In 1717, around the time of Bellamy, the tides are turning in the Caribbean. The war on piracy is beginning. The legal authorities have been getting a lot stricter, but they work very, very hard to arrest as many pirates as possible because they are sick and tired of colonists working with pirates. They are sick and tired of pirates constantly thwarting them all over the place. And this is where what we call the war on pirates really comes to a head. For six long months, the pirates rot away, waiting for trial. Perhaps this is the intention of the governor, weaken their spirits until they confess. But one man is on a heaven-sent mission to make sure the pirates stay strong through God. Strong enough to see them hang, anyway. The Puritan minister, Cotton Mather, visits the pirates over several weeks. He's one of the best-known public figures in New England. New England was founded pretty much as a religious haven for a lot of religious dissenters coming out of Europe, such as the Puritans. And crime was considered to be not just breaking the law against society. Crime was considered to be a sin, a grave sin, because the crime against society was a crime against God. Pirates were desperately hurting merchants' livelihood, causing lots of women to become widowed. So pirates were actually seen to be not just the greatest criminals in New England, they came to be seen in a lot of ways as the greatest sinners. And it was in these jails where Cotton Mather would go to speak to pirates directly. Mather was fixated on them, right? He's a Calvinist, he has these strict moral ideas that he wants to preach and broadcast to the people. And he is intrigued by these corrupted individuals. So whether they liked it or not, he spent weeks with them in their cell while they were awaiting trial. But Mather represents something larger than reforming pirates or saving criminals from sin. It turns out that the battle for men's souls and the scourge of piracy also provides best-selling writing material for him. The trials and executions will serve a greater purpose. Cotton Mather was all about the lucrative business of trying and executing pirates because he would publish all of his sermons. He wrote the call of the gospel as he was condemning some criminals who were about to be executed in the 1680s. He had it published and it had to be reprinted and he was making loads of money. So he began publishing all of his sermons, particularly about pirates, which also became massive bestsellers. What drives him is hard to say. No doubt he is a zealot. He comes from a long line of Puritan ministers. But it's easy to imagine that he is also driven by personal demons. Now in his 50s, his life has not been short of tragedy. Mather has outlived six children and two wives. His current wife suffers from manic episodes he calls satanic paroxysms, behavior that wouldn't have been out of place during the Salem witch trials of his younger days. Under the wig, Cotton Mather is a tormented man driven to extremes. Cotton Mather was extremely ambitious and really wanted to become the most famous preacher and the most respected preacher in all all of North America. Hence why he began really selling his sermons and sensationalizing them to make sure that not only were they widely available for readership, but that they would be extremely appealing for readership. He's kind of making himself sort of the religious chaplain of all of North America. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. 
but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Aside from Thomas Davis, whom for some reason Mather never interviews, there is one other prisoner the minister suspects to be less guilty than the others. Mather writes in his journal to obtain a pardon for him, but it doesn't arrive in time before the trial. It will be up to the court to decide who, if anyone, is innocent. The spectacle of a pirate trial and execution serves a purpose for the state, much as it serves a purpose to the church. By 1717, the justice system has been honed into a pirate-killing machine. All of the accused are assumed guilty until proven innocent. Piracy was considered to be the ultimate attack against your own society, the ultimate attack against the sovereign. There was no reason why you should acquit a pirate, regardless of what their circumstance was, because if you're amongst pirates, the idea is you're participating. So therefore, you should be guilty no matter what. But legally, we have to put you on trial because it's against the law not to give somebody a trial. So finally, in November 1717, two trials are set. One for Thomas Davis of the Widder, the other for the seven pirates of the Mary Ann. Will Davis be proven innocent? Will the Mary Ann pirates be found guilty? Will they all hang on Boston Common? As the pirates await their fates, they may still harbor one tiny sliver of hope. They know the storm wrecked the Widder, but what of the other ships in Bellamy's pirate fleet? Specifically, Bellamy's closest ally, Paul's grave Williams. Will he return for them? Could he attempt a rescue? Throughout the spring of 1717, the Marianne aimlessly plies the waters of New Hampshire and Maine. Following the storm, which they managed to survive, Paul's grave Williams spends weeks forlornly waiting to rendezvous with the widow. As time passes, the crew grow restless. In these frigid backwaters, there's little more than the occasional fishing boat for a prize. Finally, the news Williams has been dreading arrives. They capture a merchant ship, the Swallow, and with it, news from Boston. It may have been many days or even weeks before Williams knew exactly what had happened. But, you know, it would have been a shock, I would imagine, right? They clearly had worked very closely together. So I imagine they trusted each other. They'd been through a lot together. And that this must have been, I would think, a personal loss and shock for him. They discover the tragic fate of the widow and the capture of the survivors. They also hear how fear of piracy has now reached fever pitch throughout New England. Bellamy's depredations, combined with their own, has pushed the already fearful colonies over the edge. The Lieutenant Governor of Massachusetts even closed Boston Harbor for a week. The greatest commercial harbor in America shut down for fear of the pirates. Moreover, the colonies have now dispatched a number of warships to hunt them down. Battered and dejected, Williams decides they must get out while they still can. The Marianne set sail, heading south, away from New England, and leaving their brethren to their fates. 
18th of October, 1717. The trial begins. A news hawker stands on wooden pallets outside Boston townhouse and spreads word of the trial. Boston newsletter, pirates on trial. The marketplace is the commercial center of Boston. The streets are buzzing. Vendors, traders, shopkeepers all vie for customers' attention. The smell of sea air, manure, and fish guts pervade the square. The young hawker has been belting headlines at the top of his voice since sunrise. Guilty sea rovers stand in townhouse. From all directions, people come to buy the news sheet. The people of Boston do love a pirate trial. Pirates became a huge deal. They were receiving unusual levels of media coverage in a sort of breaking news way about their depredations and starting to get more and more attention. Boston was the media hub of the English-speaking Americas, right? The Boston Newsletter for much of the reign of piracy, including 1717, was the only regularly published newspaper in the British Americas, including the Caribbean. And the fact that the Bellamy Pirates were tried right there in Boston, just down the street from the newspaper offices, certainly shaped the tone of things. The Pirates themselves aren't just figures of gossip and scandal. The growing media attention also reflects the state's growing fear of piracy. So there's both a public shift and a sort of propaganda shift at this point in time. When it comes to how that impacts the newspapers, the newspapers play on that and exacerbate it because the newspapers, what they really want to do is to deter people from thinking about turning to piracy. And to do that, they show the real violence and the real destitute side of piracy. So you see the descriptions of pirates who are extremely violent to people who they've captured. But then they also talk about pirates who are caught and who are executed, showing that what really happens to pirates at the end is that you won't make your fortune, you'll be executed. Inside the townhouse, the men who will decide the pirates' fate settle into their seats. Mr. Smith, His Majesty's advocate for the prosecution, quietly reviews his opening statement. His Excellency Samuel Shute Esquire, Governor of the Bay of Massachusetts, drums his fingers impatiently. He wants to get this charade over with. Alongside him on the bench are a number of stony-faced men, his Majesty's Council, and sat at the centre on a raised podium is Judge of the Vice-Admiralty, John Menzies. This is his courtroom, and in his mind the verdict is already clear. There is no jury. Juries could be sympathetic, they could be influenced. They could even be bought. Whilst all well and good for the civilised world, juries are an unnecessary impediment to killing pirates. The trials were just for show. They weren't a legitimate trial because the big thing is they removed the jury system for the most part. And basically nine times out of 10, they were already pretty much convicted of piracy by the time they entered the courtroom. Getting rid of the jury system was probably one of the best decisions for Britain in terms of trying to eradicate piracy. The pirates of Mary Ann line up in front of the court. Judge Menzies bangs his gavel to begin the proceedings. The accused men are named. Simon von Vorst, John Brown, Thomas South, Thomas Baker, Hendrik Quintor, 
Peter Cornelius Hoof and John Sean. They stand accused of piracy, namely seizing the merchant ship Mary Ann, robbing its cargo, chiefly Madeira wine, and imprisoning her crew. And finally, for sailing in consort with Bellamy's pirate flagship, the Widder, with, quote, execrable designs to oppress the innocent and cover the sea with depredations and robberies. Frankly, the pirates are lucky that's all there is. If only they knew. The list of charges barely scrapes the surface of their villainy. Mr. Smith, His Majesty's advocate, asks the pirates, How do you plead? They all reply, Not guilty. The trial has begun. Mr. Smith delivers a scathing speech that shatters any illusion of hope the pirates hold. The laws of all nations that have settled into regular governments define and declare a pirate to be an enemy of mankind, a wild and savage beast which every man may lawfully destroy. He is perhaps the only criminal on earth whose crime cannot be absolutely pardoned, nor his punishment remitted by any prince or state whatsoever. Eight days later, Thomas Davis goes on a separate trial. His indictments are similar, attacking a free trading ship and imprisoning the master and his crew. Davis, too, pleads not guilty. The governor snorts with contempt. They all say the same. And they all hang in the end. Witnesses are called into court to speak. Many of them were imprisoned by the pirates at one point or another. Testimonies flow in. How the pirates held a sword to the captain's heart, drank all the wine, threatened to break the prisoners' necks. It doesn't look good for the defendants. That is, except for two pirates. Thomas South and John Sean. These two are proven to have been unarmed during the capture of the Mary Ann. A small detail can be the difference between life and death. The witness testimonies for Thomas Davis are more positive, to his great relief. Many confirm Davis was a carpenter aboard a ship called St. Michael, captained by one James Williams, and that he was indeed forced to join Bellamy's gang. But Davis knows being forced isn't enough. It's how you behave after. So there's a lot of questions that rise up in trials about, well, did you then take part? in any of these piracies. And if you were seen to take part, you still might be found guilty at the end of the day. So it's extremely difficult to prove your innocence. And pirates do that intentionally. They force people who have been forced on board to take part in these plundering activities because they know the minute that they're implicated, how do they prove their innocence after that point? They're now guilty of piracy. They are now pirates, whether they want it to be or not. It's really hard to judge and to prove. So yeah, in the piracy trials, it sometimes just comes down to your luck. The court are looking for inconsistencies, and it doesn't take long for them to find one. A witness, Captain John Brett, takes the stand. He insists that Bellamy never forced anyone to join his crew, and that all the pirates were volunteers. The judge raises his eyebrows and takes a note. Davis and his lawyer exchange panicked glances. Davis suddenly seems very pale. A shadow of doubt has been cast over him. Meanwhile, far from Boston, off the Carolina coast, a captured merchant captain begs for mercy. 
Through the summer of 1717, in the warmer waters of the southern colonies, the surviving Bellamy pirates of the Marianne have continued their piracy unabated. The merchant crew hardly recognize their disfigured captain, battered and bruised as he is. Just as the pirates hardly recognize the man conducting the interrogation, it is Paul's grave Williams. The mutilated merchant captain pleads with him to stop. Williams rages. He threatens to burn the captured ship and everyone on board. There's silver in the ballast, the captain suddenly blurts out. Williams throws him on the ground. Since the death of Bellamy, Williams is a changed man. It's not a change for the better. Back aboard his ship, the Marianne, there is growing disharmony amongst the crew. Many desert. Some are concerned about Williams's behavior. Others have simply had enough of the hardship. On their way south, nine forced men spring a mutiny and try to take the ship. A brawl erupts. Some of the pirates are still loyal to their captain. Williams emerges from his quarters loosely dressed in a shirt and breeches. He takes the brunt of his cutlass and smashes a man's nose in. Many are wounded in the fight, but the mutiny is put down. But Williams doesn't leave it there. He orders them to carry out his punishment for the three ringleaders. He strings up the mutineers from the yard arm, hanging by their necks, twitching until they go limp, suspended in the air. They sway in the wind. It is a message to anyone who doubts him. Or perhaps it's just the rage he feels for their change in fortunes. After the Widaw crashed and was destroyed in the massive storm, Palgrave Williams found out that his partner, his long-term friend, not only had died along with virtually almost every single member of his crew on the ship, but also all the wealth and riches died along with him. And so Palgrave Williams went from being one of the most wealthiest and powerful pirates to losing everything. We don't know what really happened to him. It's thought that perhaps he went to West Africa or maybe another pirate haven and perhaps lived on his own kind of in disgrace or just isolating himself. There's no way back home to New England and no hope of retirement. The old, battle-scarred and storm-damaged Marianne limps back to the only safe port available to them, Nassau. Back in Boston, the pirates are given a chance to defend themselves. To judge Menzies, it's all a formality. Like so many paltry excuses from devilish tongues, he's heard it all before. Lastly, the pirate called Thomas South repeats several witness statements vouching that he never carried arms. It emerges that he, like Thomas Davis, was also a forced carpenter from the St. Michael. Unfortunately for him, the one witness who could vouch for him, Davis, is on trial separately. When Davis is invited to give his defense, he repeats his story again, for the millionth time, it seems to him. He sailed aboard the St. Michael from Bristol in September 1716. In December, he was taken by Bellamy. Mr. Valentine, Davis's lawyer, speaks on his behalf. 
he is certain of Davis's innocence. Witnesses claim he is a sober and honest man of good conversation, that he was often abused by the pirates. They would also be there to listen to character witnesses, people who could vouch for the person saying, you know, I'm his neighbor, I'm his wife, I'm his former co-worker. They would listen to a lot of evidence that was presented. But in order for these pirates who claimed to be forced into it to be acquitted, they had to depend on someone to speak for them. And every once in a while, there might be a prisoner on the ship who could vouch saying, this person, I saw him being forced into it. I saw how he was forced to sign the articles. This was usually the eyewitness, and it was usually someone held hostage on the same pirate ship. So far, so good for Davis. But the trial is far from over. A written witness deposition is read aloud by Mr. Smith for the prosecution. In it, the deposed man claims Davis was not aboard the widow, as he claims, but was one of the pirates aboard the Mary Ann. Davis looks on in fear. His life hangs by a thread. He claims this is false and his lawyer rushes to discredit the statement. They know the slightest doubt could hang him. The prosecutor, Mr. Smith, tastes blood and makes a fierce closing statement against Davis. To conclude, the crimes charged upon the prisoner being direct violations of the laws of nature as well as his majesty's, and the proofs adduced being sufficient to convict him, he ought to suffer the pains of death. Davis feels his pounding heart rise up and beat through his mouth as if he's about to throw it up. Stunned, he is ushered out of the court so an official decision can be made. The same goes for the pirates of the Mary Ann. Their futures are about to be decided. On the 22nd and the 28th of November, the seven pirates of the Mary Ann and Thomas Davis line up before the officials. Some of them whisper prayers under their breath. They can use all the help they can get. Mr. Smith scowls at the pirates. His deep voice booms through the courtroom. This court, having duly considered the indictment and the proofs of the several articles contained therein, together with your defenses, have found you Simon Van Vorst, John Brown, Thomas Baker, Hendrik Quintor, Peter Cornelius Hoof, and John Sean, guilty of the crimes of piracy, robbery, and felony. As for Thomas South and Thomas Davis, the court have found you not guilty. Davis shuts his eyes and weeps. He doesn't believe it. His entire life flashes through his mind. Davis and South both sink to their knees, thanking the court, the judge and God. They are free men again. Their long nightmare is finally over. Meanwhile, the guilty pirates stand motionless and pale. Each of you shall be hanged up by the neck until you and each of you are dead and the Lord have mercy on your souls. The verdict is done. The bar is dismissed. The execution awaits. It is the 15th of November, 1717. The newshawker fights through the masses of people gathering on the streets. Pirate execution today. Public hanging at Boston Common. No one is listening. 
he squeezes his way through the throng and finds a gap of air. He's caught in a crush of fine cotton coats, muslin dresses and silk waistcoats. People have dressed up for the occasion in all sorts of rich and colourful apparel. Little did he realise how far people would travel for the hanging. It's useless trying to sell papers today. They've been reading the reports for months. Now they've come to see it in the flesh. Executions then were very much public events. They didn't take place behind walls or behind closed doors. The whole point was for an execution to be seen by a massive, hopefully cheering crowds. They were supposed to be moral lessons. You were literally seeing what happens to somebody who breaks the law. The raucous whistles, booing, and jeers become deafening as the pirates arrive by canoe and walk the 15 minutes from Charles River up to Boston Common and the gallows. One man who is unperturbed, as usual, is Cotton Mather. He notes with satisfaction the pirates trembling with fear. The mob want a reaction, even a few tears. It's all a show. The pirates are the performers. The gallows are their stage. And the six nooses swinging in the breeze is their curtain call. A public execution in Boston was very much a standardized ritual. It was seen as entertainment. It's practically theater for them. And this is because it was treated as such. The trials and especially the executions of the pirates were supposed to be symbols of the triumph of law and the crown and everything else over the criminality of the pirates themselves. There's part of how you demonstrated that you were winning the war. Midday in Boston Common. The pirates shiver in the wind. Their bodies are hypersensitive to the cold metal chains on their wrists, the damp rags on their shoulders, the executioner calls them up. The audience scream in excitement. Even little children join in the noise. It's time for their final words. The pirate was required to give what was called a last dying speech. First, the pirate had to publicly admit their crime. Second, the pirate would try to atone or beg forgiveness. And finally, they would warn anyone against entering a life of piracy. Von Vorst reads prayers to himself in his native Dutch. He tells the audience to lead a life of religion and be good to their parents. Others can't speak. Brown seems to be in an awful state. Mather tries to reassure the trembling pirate. There is help to be had in the admirable savior you must say to him, O oh, my Savior, cleanse me from all my sin. But Brown is shaking with rage. He breaks out into a furious, foul-mouthed tirade against the audience, swearing and screaming at the crowd in the foul tongue familiar to a pirate. Mather shakes his head in disappointment. But the crowd cheers him on. They love the unrepentant ones. 
There were cases of pirates who were completely unrepentant and they would start hurling all this abuse at the audience, swearing at them, saying that they had no intention of repenting, that they had done nothing wrong and that they were being unjustly and unfairly accused. So they would send out insults and jeers to the public. Sometimes they wouldn't speak. Sometimes they would spit on people close enough. So these were pirates who also unwittingly added more entertainment to the public execution ritual. Then there were some pirates who treated it as a joke. There was one newspaper who described an anonymous pirate who, quote, took off his hat and threw it out to his friends into the audience, kind of adding to this show. The executioner walks up to each pirate one by one. The noose comes down around their necks. The crowd go quiet. The scene has suddenly become eerily still. The pirates take a sharp breath. The noose for pirates was different than virtually every other criminal sentenced to death. The noose was shorter. So what happened is when the scaffold dropped under them, their neck wouldn't break. Instead, they would have intense pain and they would strangle to death and their limbs would start jerking around. There were some pirates who could be dangling and struggling and being strangled for almost an hour. And people would stand and watch this horrible event. Twitching on the end of a hemp rope, the pirates dance what they darkly refer to as the hempen jig. There is no record of a burial. It is likely the bodies are covered in tar and caged in iron gibbets in full view of the harbor. An example to all pirates who sail New England waters. Piracy will no longer be tolerated. They will be hunted down and brought to justice. This is the start of a process that we're seeing around 1717 that will increase into the 1720s. We start seeing a lot more group executions of pirates or very large group trials of pirates. And they are doing this not just to get rid of as many pirates as possible, but to show their power. This is the greatest extermination campaign of pirates ever. The larger the group execution, the more powerful Britain could look. After the hanging, Cotton Mather looks on at the pirates' dangling bodies. He places his briefcase on the floor, takes out his diary, and jots his final thoughts. Behold, reader, the end of piracy. How wrong he is. Times are changing. The authorities will take the fight to the pirates. But the golden age of piracy is far from over. News of the trials and hangings reach the pirates in the Bahamas. The news enrages them. The pirates will fight back. This final period of the Golden Age will see the most notorious villains rise up and throw off the yoke of imperial authority. Names like Steed Bonnet, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Blackbeard. Next week on Real Pirates. Piracy in the Americas is reaching a climax. Just as the British Empire ratchets up the pressure, some of the greatest maritime villains burst onto the scene. Chief amongst them is Blackbeard. 
But Blackbeard's rise to prominence and his legendary status as the world's most fearsome buccaneer was far from certain, and in 1717, things might have turned out very different for him and the Americas. In fact, it all hinges on a chance meeting with another, far less likely sort of character. Steed Bonnet, the upstanding colonial nobleman turned pirate. Find out next week on Real Pirates. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boirot for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Bexon. Written by Aman Khalid. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mix master by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. <laughs>